Welcome to episode 10 in the Kips Personal Trainer Application Podcast. My name is Tyler Valencia and I'm the president of Kips and Kettlebell Concepts. In this episode, we have Dr. Jason Karp, who is a running specialist based in San Diego, California. Dr. Karp has a PhD in exercise physiology from Indiana University and was the 2011 IDEA Personal Trainer of the Year. In this episode, we are talking about one of the most fundamental forms of training that is not dissected in personal training education, that is running. Throughout this episode, Dr. Karp will share his insights on running drills, treadmill running benefits, the differences in running shoes, and how strength training fits into a running program. Let's jump into the episode. For entry-level personal trainers or even experienced trainers, sometimes when we're working with clients, we will just have the tendency just to throw them on the treadmill and hit the timer five, 10 minutes, and we don't really have a goal in mind or even really critiquing them. Maybe we're just working on building a relationship with them. But today with our guest, Dr. Karp, um, you are somebody that has a wealth of knowledge and running. And to start off, what do you think are some really key assessments or even visual assessments that you would do with a client to get a better understanding of their running performance or even their current status? Well, the first is to really just get an idea of their background as a runner and you know, what led them to me to help them and understand uh, the, the full picture. You know, know how much running they've done in the past and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, what their goals are and you know, all the kind of the basic stuff, but to really just get an understanding of their background in running. You know, like you said, some people are brand new mm-hmm. to this and they've never run before. And so there's a lot of things that we can do with them to practice running technique as well as the, the training aspect as the whole technical aspect of running but the other people have been running for 10 years you know, it's very hard to change running form in somebody who's been running for that long because it's so ingrained already mm-hmm. so uh, you know it only really address those things if they're doing specific things that could potentially lead to an injury but in new runners there's a lot that you can do i mean especially when you just visually you know look at them run because there's a lot of tiny little flaws that people make when they're not used to running the yeah. most obvious one of which is landing with their foot way out in front of their center of mass mm-hmm. and so that's something that you know you can correct through the use of drills and and uh and those kinds of things to just get them to learn and to break down the actual technical part of running into its pieces and, and get them to learn to land directly underneath their center of mass yeah yeah and so as uh, we were talking a little bit before the podcast um, with trainers, experienced trainers, entry-level trainers, the use of the treadmill is often that uh, time to connect and maybe asking about how their day is or, um, you know, just rambling about, about things just to create a connection. But really there are some things that I think um, you can work with them on the treadmill or even off the treadmill in your experience and uh, working with clients that are competing for a marathon or even a half marathon or even these endurance competition, do you notice any type of difference between maybe the treadmill and outdoor running? Uh, The technical aspect is actually very similar. The only difference with the treadmill is that, you know, the belt will pull your leg back when it lands. Mm -hmm. But, you know, despite what people think about it being so much different, the research is, there's been actually a lot of research to compare treadmill running to overground running. 
And uh, running form really doesn't change when you go from overground running to treadmill running. But in terms of trying to help people learn proper technique, it's going to be best to do that off the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Because the treadmill, like I said, will, will assist the, the movement of the legs. And then if the treadmill is assisting you, then the person is not going to learn that. The, you know, the way the person's muscles are recruited to move the leg on its own is not going to be ingrained. So it's better to learn the technique over ground and then apply that when you go onto the treadmill. Yeah. But the treadmill allows you to do specific workouts that would be harder to duplicate outside, specifically like a hill workout. You know, you can manipulate the, the grade of the hill at your own will rather than have to go find a hill of a certain grade outside. And you know, of course, then also when you do a hill workout outside, you have to run back down the hill. And there's a lot of soreness that comes from running downhill. You can avoid all of that on the treadmill because you can just have the uphill force. You don't have to run back down the hill to do the next hill rep. Really so, great. You know, the, the treadmill enables you to do things that would be hard to duplicate doing the same kind of a workout outside. Having yeah. said that, you know, outdoor running is, is I don't want to say better, but you know, specifically if you're training for a race, well, all the races are they're not on the treadmill. So there's the whole specificity of training principle that you, know, you want to train on the terrain that you're going to be running the race on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, there have been people who have trained for marathons purely by running on a treadmill. It's possible, but it's not the most ideal. Mm. It, it, for maybe people that you work with specifically, do you have maybe a, um, if they are running on a treadmill, do you have like maybe a recommendation that, oh, maybe two weeks, a month, two months out that you suggest that they do start running out outside on the path? Well, I would always suggest that they run outside. I would only suggest they do the treadmill if they're taking some class at a gym that they mm-hmm. want to be part of that group workout or if, if they're running on their own, that if the weather is so bad outside that they can't get the workout done because of the climate, mm-hmm. then they can duplicate the workout on the treadmill. But except for those cases, I would always say to run outside. It's always going to be a better experience because you're outside in nature or Mm-hmm. or you're doing the workout on a bike path or even on the track or so yeah i mean i would i would always suggest that people run outside and but in certain circumstances it might be better to do the workout on a treadmill if you can't get the same kind of a workout done outside yeah agreed agreed um if when we're talking about drills and i like what you said about the treadmill and what it offers you know whether it's incline running or being able to find an a, specific grade that you want to work out when i think about uh, grade running uh, there's two different hills that are in in my head i grew up in uh, manhattan beach california and we have a pretty famous hill it's not as used as much anymore due to regulations that were put on a sand hill but it's called sand dune um, hill and athletes would come and run up it Um, they would do drills on it and i mean just going one time up and and, or can't really run up it because it's so steep um but you know, just being able to replicate some form of that in a controlled environment on a treadmill and then how you said being able to decrease that uh, grade for um, less impact on the joints and what that has and recovery. I mean, you can't really uh, put a, um, a value on that. That's so valuable for somebody and their right. training experience and even time. Uh, you can only imagine if, if you had to 
going up this humongous hill or, you know, and the time that it takes to get back to your starting point on a treadmill, that's just one simple button, just pressing it and all, and watching it decrease automatically right there. So um, for personal trainers that are working with clients that, you know, want to improve the running, want to improve their endurance, are there some specific drills that are maybe your go-to or your favorites? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I have a list of uh, you know, running technique drills that I use with people to practice and ingrain the running technique. So, I mean, mm-hmm. all kinds of things that, you know, a lot of people, if they ran track in high school, they might remember some of the high school drills that, that we all did. And so it's really just about breaking down the, the running form into its components and, and learning, you know, actively placing your foot on the ground directly underneath you and and how the, the leg and the foot goes through the running cycle and breaking that down into its parts. Mm-hmm. So you work from the, the whole movement and then break it down into parts and then go back to the whole movement. And, you know, that gets into the whole area of skill acquisition and how you practice in an off sport, you know, how you practice a golf swing or you know, how you practice throwing a baseball. So it's the whole, you know, the, the whole part, whole method of, of training the movement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, I have a whole uh, repertoire of drills that I'll take people through to, to practice that. Nice. Nice. I would personally even, I see the value in these drills being incorporated even before a work. I personally, I ran track in high school um, and I do some of those drills before I even work out these days. Throughout the day, I sit down a lot. So just getting out in my backyard and doing some of these drills, some skips, some um, leg kicks and all that kind of stuff just to get the blood flowing, get the joints moving. I see great value in that. And for personal trainers in general, um, even in a gym setting, taking their client and doing some of these, they are probably in similar situations. They've been sitting or they've been at work in one type of um, posture. So getting them, either if your gym has a, a basketball court or even just a side space that you can do some of these things i think that there's some value in those it's that's something different than just okay i'm going to put you on the treadmill for five minutes and then i'm going to take you to this area we're going to do a couple stretches it put put some value for the trainer that and their knowledge and their ability to um, you know provide something that's different than just the the norm yeah exactly and then the drills can also be used for things like dynamic flexibility so it kind of serves a dual purpose that you can do it as its own separate workout to practice running technique and to ingrain the form. But then, like you said, you do it like before a workout. You can also do it as part of your warm-up routine as part of the dynamic flexibility that you do right before the workout. Yep. 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 With what we're talking about now with the, these, learning these drills and, you know, the mechanics of running and all these types of stuff. I, when I was in my graduate program, I had the privilege of one of the seminars I had to attend was about running economy and uh, basically analyzing your client. Um, I believe you have a course that's um, for individuals and, but do you have any, can you talk a little bit about your course, but also maybe any courses that you recommend that are specifically for personal trainers? Yeah. So my course is specifically on running, the running certification course, just like there's so many certification courses in the fitness industry, but running has been pretty much neglected despite its popularity and its effectiveness for making people fit and especially for things like weight loss. 
So my course covers everything about running, physiology, technique, training, workouts, program design, running for weight loss, Wow. Um, creating new programming for gyms so they can increase revenue. Because that's something that's always interested me that you walk into any you know, big box gym and there are no classes being done on the treadmill, you know, like other group exercise classes. You don't have like the spinning version on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. And there's no programming that's ever done in gyms, despite the, how many people run. Running is the largest segment of the, the fitness market, yet most gyms neglect it. And so it's a, an area that people can, you know, the gyms can generate more revenue. Yep. You know, when people want to train for a race, they don't go to their local gym to get help to do that, which is remarkable to me because that's where the fitness experts are supposed to be. Yeah. And yet no one's going to their local gym to get a half marathon training program. And so yeah. I'm slowly trying to change that to get gyms to see that this is an opportunity for them to tap into the millions of people, there's 20 million people who run a race in the U.S. every year. So this is a huge market for gyms to tap into. Oh, yeah. That, what's kind of funny is I 100% agree with you that gyms aren't tapping into these. And um, I at the time or right now, I do not train clients. I, you know, create my education for, with KIPS and work with contractors and uh, educators develop, develop more education. And before that, I actually used to do a class that had a treadmill portion of it. And I'm trying to recall the name. It was a, it was a pretty uh, corny name. I think it was uh, tread and tread or something like that, but well, it was kind of um, interesting. And it just kind of shows the state of the use of a treadmill is for the portion done on the treadmill when i took over this class they were actually shocked on the things that i would do with them i would do drills with them i would do warm-ups with them they were just used to somebody just how i've been kind of um saying they just hit the the timer and okay we're gonna do the treadmill for x amount of time so they were really shocked in terms of what they can do to improve their running what they can do prior in terms of dynamic warm-ups get their blood flowing and then even the intervals that I incorporated with them, you know, using the grade, using the speed, their speed and always keeping it individualized to them. That was the big thing that they didn't understand is the percentages that I were, were, was giving them. They were like, they were so used to, well, what speed is that? And I'm like, well, it's based on yourself. You know, you gotta, you gotta learn about yourself, what you're capable. And um, so these types of things are, uh, are hopefully becoming more available, like things with your course where, trainers can understand that type of programming I personally believe in, and I've yet to see this type of education made available in a certification for personal trainers, an entry level personal training program. Well, yeah, that's why I mean, I'm happy that we've had quite a bit of success with this so far that we're in 23 countries already with the certification program. I'm very proud of that, but of course I want it to be even larger. I want this to be the, the place where people come to to learn about running oh yeah and i think that uh what you can offer as a personal trainer and having a certification like this just opens it up because when we get and you can speak to this as well when we work with clients they're they have some type of already preconceived um, feelings about running or what they believe is going to work. And so being able to have more knowledge in that area is only going to make your offerings that much stronger. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, 
So my goal is to create experts so that when they work with their clients that that they can give them you know expert advice and expert training. Because I do think, you know, without sounding too critical, I do think that that's a, a big missing piece from the fitness industry. Oh, yeah. You know, the industry, unlike other industries, the fitness industry does not mandate an education. You know, you look at uh, you know, a similar field, physical therapy, to become a physical therapist, everybody has to go through graduate school. You have to get a master's or doctorate in physical therapy in order to call yourself a physical therapist and to be able to provide that service. Mm -hmm. you know, to be a middle school or high school physical education teacher, same thing. You have to go to school and have a degree in physical education. And the uh, same standards don't exist in the fitness industry. Yeah. That's unfortunate. I think it, it lowers the performance of the entire industry and also lowers the, the way the industry is perceived. Mm -hmm. you know, people don't perceive trainers the way they perceive physical therapists. Yep. Um, that's because of the, uh, the lack of education that is required for the physician. Agreed. Agreed. That's a difficult thing to change. I mean, I, in an ideal world, I think every trainer would you know, be required to have a degree. And I really think that personal training should work the same way as physical therapy. That because exercise is medicine, there's so much research to show that that uh, doctors should be prescribing a personal trainer, just the same way they write a prescription for a physical therapist. When you have an injury, you take that prescription to the physical therapy office and it's covered by insurance. It should work exactly the same way in the fitness industry. When somebody has you know, a few risk factors for cardiovascular disease, a sedentary lifestyle is one of the primary risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And the other risk factors can be mitigated by exercising. And so when somebody has those risk factors, they go to the doctor, the doctor should be able to write a prescription. Here's a prescription for personal training. You take that to your local gym and you'd, you'd be able to work with a personal trainer and it's covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. That's the way I think it should be done. But for that to happen, the industry has to start mandating an education for every single personal trainer. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Once that happens, then I think we can put other steps in place to have the service be covered by insurance and have doctors write prescriptions for it. Yeah. Oh, I will say that is a, a very, I don't want to call it a heated topic, but it's one that I believe in a couple episodes um, we've talked about that um, the licensure or the education uh, entry level requirements for the industry. And um, I know that's one that, you know, 10 years ago they were talking about in when I was in college and it's still something that goes back and forth, back and forth. And just how you said, that is one of the things with the, the credibility of the industry. I see the benefit in that. And in my mind that there's also the business end of it and, you know, being a business owner that sells education for personal trainers, there's that aspect. So it's a, I honestly don't know when, what will happen, but uh, it's definitely something um, where, those outcomes that you talked about for clients, for being able to um, decrease health risks and those things associated with it. There's such a big benefit for that. And hopefully we can see those types of things. Just how you said, it's not just, you know, cardiovascular disease. There's so many other aspects of it that'll be improved. And I mean, the one that I always talk about that's not as mentioned as frequently is mental health. And I think you'll probably 
like this because I've seen your your posts on we're friends on Facebook, and I think you might even posted something about that today. Is the mental health aspect of it, just the clarity and the, the mental well being associated with exercise is just so big. And um, I there's a piece of research that whenever I talk about adolescent exercise, um, it's one of my favorites, and um, I can't recall the, the name of it off the top of my head, but it it talks about adolescents in middle school and their development with fundamental movements. And of course it talks about the physical aspects and the outcomes associated, but it mentions the physical well-being, the mental aspect too, that these kids that if they are able to master these fundamental movements in middle school, that they will show a a better uh, self image later on in life, have a higher chance of exercise later on in life, all these things associated with mental well-being that it's it's almost like well why aren't we doing these with our with kids with adolescents why are we incorporating these things so much and it's such a a, a hot topic a a key thing but yet we don't see, we see those things falling through the cracks. Yeah, I talk about the some of the, the mental research in one of my books and uh, some of it we're also I was supposed to give a TED talk a couple of weeks ago or last week but everything has been postponed now so in the fall I'll be talking about this the TED stage as well but. You know that the, there's a lot of research to show that exercise changes you on the inside, specifically it changes things in your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of research to show that aerobic exercise, specifically running, ameliorates symptoms of depression, just as if not, it's just as if not more effective as the prescription drugs wow. for people who have depression. You know, it increases serotonin in the brain, which is what's lacking in people who have a clinical depression. And then uh, also the whole runner's high that people have heard about that's from the release of opioids and cannabinoids in the brain. So it's the same thing as like you know, smoking pot. It has releases the same chemicals in the brain. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of research like with older people and running has been shown to decrease the incidence of Alzheimer's disease and, and improves cognitive function. So there's quite a bit of research. And you mentioned that, you know, school children, there's a lot of research to show that that kids who exercise perform better in school academically. So there's actually, a, there's a mountain of research to show that, that exercise is not just good for your physical body, it's also good for you know, the, the chemistry of your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that's not talked about a lot. And so yeah. I always am talking about how, you know, people think I'm funny, I, I talk about how we're animals. You know, people don't think of humans as animals. We somehow think we're different than animals. And, mm-hmm. And the truth is we're really much more split than we are different. The only thing that makes us different is our more highly processed brain. And so people need to remember that we are animals first. And so we are physical beings. The human existence is physical. And so if we get back to what it means to be an animal and be physically active, that changes you on the inside. You don't need to start from the inside. You start from the outside. You start from who we are as animals. Mm-hmm. You know, a sound body creates a sound mind, you know, which is, of course, a twist on the you know, the famous term, the sound mind and the sound body. You know, I believe that we start on the body first, we work from the outside, and that changes us on the inside. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that gets missed a lot in our society, especially since we live in a sedentary society. We're moving further and further away from what it means to be an animal. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that people don't think about is that you know, evolution has not stopped with us. We are just one step. You know, time keeps going. <laughs> We're just one. We're just one exit on the highway. The highway keeps going forever. 
And so if we keep up this sedentary lifestyle, then future generations, we're going to get further and further away from what we evolved to be right now. You know, a million years from now, a human being is going to be quite physically different because we're not going to keep the same abilities, the physical abilities that we have now and that our ancestors had. We're not going to keep those same abilities if we don't need to use them. And so we have to keep using them. Otherwise, if we were able to see what a human looks like a million years from now, if we keep on the same path that we are now, a human being will look quite physically different, mm-hmm. which is a shame because now we're built to move. But if we stop moving, yeah, that's going to change future generations of humans. Yeah. yeah that's good stuff. Really good stuff. And, you know, the aspect that I think about with physical exercise, physical activity, and working with adolescents going a step back with that is what it has to pay off later on in life. And um, just a small little story about, um, I guess you could say it's a client. It's my cousin, a cousin that I'm helping um, with exercise. He's a teenager and he's just getting into physical activity. And the aspect that I always share with him is this is just the initial part of your introduction with exercise, there's going to have, there's going to be so many different pieces of this that come into play later on. Just the, what you're learning in terms of the consistency, the health benefits and how this is going to pay off in your work, in your schoolwork and in in the future. Those are elements that we don't even talk about. Um, And it's so important. Um, And you see these things and the, the example that I always come back to is with Arnold, you know, every exercise or fitness professional always has their, uh, you know, some type of Arnold story. And I remember in one of his documentaries, he talked about how exercise is what taught him the consistency, what it means to wake up early and consistently do his exercise and what that, and what that taught him for business and how that later paid off for him. There are a lot of lessons that you can uh, transfer from being physically active for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, while we start getting towards you know, the end of this podcast, I got to ask the, the common question because it's one that every trainer will have to answer is the whole talk about shin splints. Can you provide some insight on shin splints? Yeah, so the, the medical term for shin splints is medial tibial stress syndrome. So it's, it's stress to the tibia bone, which is the, the major bone in the lower part of the leg. So a lot of new runners get it because they're not used to the stress of, you know, when you run, especially when you run over ground, you know, there's stress to the bone. You know, the tibia is the weight-bearing bone. The fibula doesn't bear weight. It's not, you know, it doesn't bear weight on when you land. It's the tibia that bears the weight. And so... It's a common injury that people have when they first start running, but it's not dangerous and it will go away once the bone adapt. Bones are actually very good at adapting to stress more quickly than tendons and even muscles. Mm-hmm. The bones, you know, there's a law, it's Wolf's Law, it's called named after the guy who discovered this, that bones uh, become more dense you know, with, the, with the stress. So it's like why weight-bearing exercise is very good for senior citizens, especially females, because estrogen is the single biggest protective effect on bones 
And so when women get older and they, they go through menopause and they lose the protective effect of estrogen, that's why so many older women have problems with their bones and get fractures. And so weight-bearing exercise is especially important for older people. Mm-hmm. But even young runners, you know, a lot of high school runners, myself included, got shin splints when we first started running in high school. And that's relatively common, but it goes away after the bone is used to the stress. So if you run every day or every other day, you know, over time, eventually the bone will recognize the stress and adapt to it and, and you get more dense and, and then the shin splints will go away. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a little careful because if you keep pushing through, if you do too much, then the stre- then the, uh, the shin splints could potentially turn into a stress fracture. And that's what you don't want to have. So as long as you don't add too much stress too quickly, you just add a little bit, allow the bone to adapt to that, and then you add a little bit more. As long as you allow time for adaptation, then the stress in the um, shin splints will eventually go away and, and you won't feel it anymore. I mean, I haven't had it in 30 years or something. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a fairly common thing among new runners because their bones just are not used to that stress, but, but it's pretty harmless unless you, you know, add stress too quickly and then it could potentially turn into you know, a hairline stress fracture. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you recommend any of the, I don't want to call them the, the traditional remedies for it in terms of stretching, new shoes, uh, run, working on running mechanics, or do you, do you find those very useful? To uh, eliminate the shin splints? Yeah. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, you can think about conditions that will lower the stress on the bone. So yes, having cushioning shoes rather than wearing like a minimalist shoe. Like if you have one of those minimalist shoes, yeah, that's just going to put more stress on the bone initially. So maybe over time that could work, but initially all that's going to do is just add more stress. Mm-hmm. So yeah, shoes can help and running on softer surfaces can help. You know, if you're always running on the concrete, well, that's like the hardest surface you can run on. So those kinds of things will exacerbate the problem because it's just more stress for the bone. Mm-hmm. As far as running technique, that could also come into play because like we were talking about earlier, how the biggest, uh, technical flaw that people make is that they land with their foot out in front of their center of mass so they severely heel strike and so when that happens the time that stress is applied to the lower leg is greater because your foot is in contact with the ground for longer before it goes through the the stance phase and eventually lifted off the ground and, and moved through the swing phase to come back in front of you if you land with your foot directly underneath you that reduces what's called the loading rate. So every time you land on the ground, you're, you're applying force to the ground. And as we all learned in high school with Isaac Newton, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So when you land on the ground and apply force to the ground, the ground applies a force that is equal in magnitude and opposite in direction to the force that you're applying to the ground. So when you land with your foot out in front of your center of mass, that increases the loading rate, the rate at which this stress is loaded on the body because your foot is now going to be in contact with the ground for longer. So that's something that you can work on to try to get your foot directly underneath your center of mass so that your entire body, your entire you know, frame is on top of where you are loading rather than have your foot out in front of you by itself and all of that force is being applied to the tibia bone, which is not going to be helpful, especially if you're already exhibiting stress and um, shin splints. So that's a technical issue that can be that can help resolve the shin splints by reducing the loading rate of the force 
by trying to get your foot directly underneath your center of mass. That's my, that is a golden nugget right there. That is huge right there for those that I'm sure every trainer has had that client that talks about that, especially if they are inactive and going into a, a physical activity program, whether it's incorporating running or even uh, depending on how inactive they were before just getting that moving, they could uh, work with those types of um, clients. So really, that seems to be a big problem for some reason, new runners, you know, more do it than not do it. They just automatically you know, flare their leg out and they're severe heel strikers. And, and that's where maybe some of the barefoot running can, can actually be beneficial. Like I wouldn't go and run like five miles barefoot, but if you take someone out on like a grass field or some other soft surface and you have them do running drills barefoot, mm-hmm. then they'll quickly learn how to place their foot underneath their center of mass because it would hurt to do it any other way. When you try to land severely on your heel when you're running barefoot, that hurts to do that. And so you're not gonna do that. And so by running barefoot, you know, I wouldn't do this like on asphalt or concrete or, or anywhere where it's a hard surface. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I wouldn't do it like go run a mile or two. You do, you do little drills where, you know, you're not just trying to go out and on a distance run because that, that's gonna hurt you too to do that barefoot if you've never done it before. Yeah. So you can do like certain drills in the grass barefoot where you learn how to place your foot underneath your center of gravity. Yep. Well, I remember doing those in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, we would, uh, at certain points in our training, we would go to the, the football field. Everyone would take their shoes off and we would do oh. these types of drills. Um, That's great for that. Yeah, but you really hit on something that. Um, I will admit that I don't really know that much about uh, in terms of footwear. I think that that is something that uh, trainers get asked about sometimes is footwear, um, you know, with the popularity that we've seen in the last, well, maybe 10 years with these minimalist shoes. Um, can you shed some light on the differences in those? Yeah, so there's uh, three major kinds of running shoes. The most common one that most people get are they're either called cushioning or sometimes they're called neutral because the people have neutral stance. So when they land on the ground, their foot doesn't severely roll inward or outward, but it stays pretty neutral, it's pretty aligned. That's why sometimes those shoes are called neutral. But uh, it used to just be called cushioning because they were just meant to provide cushioning. Mm-hmm. Then for people who pronate, so the roll, the natural rolling inward of the foot when you land on the ground is called pronation. And we're supposed to do that to some degree. That's how we absorb shock. But some people do it a little too much and their foot rolls inward way too and collapses inward. And so there are shoes to prevent that. And those are called stability shoes because they offer more stability. And then in the very extreme pronation case, we have shoes that are called motion control. So they do exactly that. They control the motion of your foot to try to force your foot in a neutral position. Hmm. Most of the population, like 90% of the population needs the the basic cushioning neutral shoe. Then there's a much smaller percentage that needs the stability and a very small percentage, I think it's a 3% that need the motion control shoe. But most running shoe stores, most specialty running shoe stores will divide their shoe, they'll categorize them when they're up on the rack. So they'll they'll, they'll label them, you know, cushioning neutral and stability and motion control. 
And so uh, you can try on different shoes based on their category. And then with the help of the people in the store, some, some of the, uh, the larger running shoe stores will have a treadmill in the store and they can put you on the treadmill and even film you so they can watch what the foot is doing when it lands on the treadmill. And then they can guide you into what kind of shoe you need. But most people, unless they have some weird aberrant biomechanics that need to be corrected, most people uh, will use a, a cushioning or neutral shoe. Really? But, yeah, so I don't know if that helps. That makes the, the decision a little bit easier because uh, people do get confused by what shoe is the best. So, you know, you see this on social media all the time. People always ask, what shoe should I get? And, you know, it always bothers me when people give out a brand recommendation because you know, Nike is no better than Brooks, which is no better than Saucony, which is no better than Asics. Each of these companies has the three categories of shoes. Nike tends to specialize in the cushioning shoe. I'm not aware of many shoes that Nike has that are the stability or the motion control. Most, if not all, of Nike's shoes are of the cushioning neutral type. But all the other companies, they all have the other kinds of shoes as well. But no company is any better or any worse than any other company. Nike perhaps does the most marketing. Maybe they spend the most amount of money on marketing to get people's attention. But they're no better or no worse than any other company. Mm-hmm. And what the research shows is that, you know, take a guess on what is the single biggest factor that, that makes someone choose one shoe over another. It's actually comfort. Mm-hmm. If you have people go into a store and trying a different pairs of shoes, Comfort is actually what uh, makes people choose one shoe over another. Hmm. So it's funny how the research uh, ends up giving you the common sense answer. I mean, of course, people are not going to wear a shoe that's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, if you need a cushioning shoe, but you're trying to run in a stability shoe, well, it's not going to feel very good because <laughs> it's not going to move in the natural way that your foot moves. You want the shoe to move the way your foot moves. You want it to feel like it's an extension of your foot. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to know which of the three categories you fall under. Yeah. No, but that's, that's once good. you know that, then the selection of shoe just comes down to comfort. You can just try on a bunch of cushioning neutral shoes and decide which feels the most comfortable. That's good insight. Really good insight. Like I mentioned before, that is something that I really don't have that much knowledge on that area just because it's, uh, um, it's a little bit outside of my, my scope, but it's very useful for trainers. Mm-hmm. It's quite a bit of technology. People don't realize how much technology there is in shoes these days. And Nike oh, has been and bringing that to the forefront with their fancy shoes that a lot of the marathoners wear. And so uh, they brought that concept of technology now into people's, the forefront of people's minds. But for many, when Nike was first uh, developed and they first were founded in the early 1970s, even back then, there was still quite a lot of technology that went into the formation of these running shoes and, and how forces are displaced because that's all about you know, injury prevention is being able to disperse the forces when you land on the ground so that all the force is not being distributed to one part of your foot because that's how injuries can happen. It's all about where, you know, how much force is applied and, and the direction of that force. And, so you want a shoe that helps to disperse that force along the whole surface area of your foot so that you reduce the risk of injury, mm-hmm. reduce the pressure. You know, everybody knows that. You know, the example I always use to describe this is like if you put the if you take your entire arm and put it on the table, flat on the table, 
all of the force of your arm, the weight of your arm is dispersed along the whole surface area of your arm. Mm -hmm. But then if you take your arm and just rest it on the elbow, you can feel the pressure difference because now the weight of your arm is all centered on the point of your elbow. So the force hasn't changed. It's still the weight of your arm. But now you're changing how that force is distributed or dispersed along the surface area. Mm -hmm. And so that's what a lot of shoes try to do is to disperse that force along the whole surface area of your foot. Really good. It's all about shock absorption. So there's a lot of technology and the types of material and there's engineers that work at Nike and all these other companies. It's all engineering and yep. strength of materials. It's just like if you build a bridge, it's all about understanding you know, the different strength of different materials and, and how to disperse forces along the length of a bridge so that the bridge doesn't collapse. The same concept. Really insightful there. Really insightful. And um, for the podcast takeaway, and I think this is going to help tie everything together, especially for personal trainers in general. Um, Cause I know we, we talked about the shin splints. We're talking about shoes, the footwear and its importance and, um, even incorporating this into a personal training program. Um, I remember when I was working on my master's and we had a, um, a course that was, had a little bit of running aspect to it and talking about running economy and plyometrics and strength training. Where do you personally see strength training and plyometrics fitting into a running program? That's a very good question. If you watch social media, a lot, uh, there's a lot of online coaches that really push the strength training. Mm -hmm. But it has its place, but only under certain circumstances. So, I mean, I guess I can retreat by saying it depends on what the, the goals are of the runner. Mm -hmm. If the goals are you know, to get fit and to look good and to feel good, then certainly I would say strength training. But if the goal is to improve running performance, especially long distance running performance, like half marathon and marathon, you would be better off focusing on the specific physiological factors that influence performance for those races. And strength training has limited, if any value, in addressing those physiological factors. It doesn't improve your VO2 max. It doesn't improve your lactate threshold. There is research to show that strength training can improve running economy through a neural mechanism, but the strength training has to be done a particular way. It has to be power type training, very heavy weights with very few reps per set, or like you mentioned, the plyometrics. You know, the purpose of plyometrics is to increase the rate of force development, how quickly your muscles can produce force against the ground. And so when you do things like that, then it can help with uh, muscle fiber recruitment and improve running economy. And economy is the, the amount of oxygen that you consume to maintain a given sub-maximal speed. So the less oxygen you consume to maintain a given speed, the more economical you are. And you can improve that through metabolic ways, training, and you can improve that through neural ways. And that's where the heavy strength training or the biometrics can improve economy through a, a neuromuscular mechanism but that aside i would say that it's better for people to first focus on the metabolic and cardiovascular aspects of running performance so really to optimize their running training first you know increase the mileage increase the 
the intensity of their workouts, to enough workouts to address lactate threshold and VO2 max and all these other physiological factors. Strength training should be the last thing that people do if they still have the energy to do more training. And so like if you take someone who runs 20 miles a week and you have a decision to make, do you stay at 20 miles a week and strength train or do you not strength train and use that time to go from 20 miles a week to 30 miles a week, which is gonna have the more direct impact on that runner's performance? Mm -hmm. Obviously going from 20 miles a week to 30 miles a week. And so most people have plenty of room in their running training to focus on or to increase, whether it's increase in volume and an increase in intensity or increasing the volume of intensity. There's many more places for people to improve their running performance than to do the strength training. And if they're going to strength train, now, like I said, it has to be of the right kind. It's not this body weight circuit training that you see all over social media and doing burpees and other calisthenics. That's not going to transfer to being able to hold a faster pace for 13 miles or 26 miles mm. because it's, it's a very different kind of activity. You know, doing burpees and, yep. and lunges and all that kind of stuff is not going to help you it's not going to improve your lactate threshold or VO2 max. It's not going to help you hold a faster pace. Mm -hmm. You have to do the specific running training to do that. Mm -hmm. And the best tra strength training for runners may very well be hill training, you know, doing a series of hill reps. You can do long hill reps to focus on the more endurance factors like VO2 max. And then you can do short hill sprints to focus on power and strength. You know, there's a plyometric nature to running a short, steep hill because your foot is in contact with the ground for a very short period of time and you're trying to you know, project yourself up the hill. So, you know, the lower leg musculature, the calves, the Achilles tendon, you know, very short hill sprints is, is uh, probably much better than doing you know, burpees and, and other kinds of jumping activities. I would say to people that if they want to strength train, first maximize all your other training. And then if you want to train, train on top of that, make the strength training very specific to the running. You know, toe training is perhaps the best type of strength training, power training for running. Really good advice. Really good advice right there. And really insightful. And, you know, that's stuff that trainers can apply immediately if they're working with clients that are wanting to do a half marathon marathon or an endurance competitions, which have become so popular these days. So really, really useful. Uh, Dr. Carp, before we uh, close this up, can you share some information about yourself in terms of your social media accounts, your Facebook accounts, Instagram, website, all that kind of good stuff? Sure. Well, people can find me through our social media. It's uh, at Dr. Jason Carp, with a K, Carp with a K, K-A-R-P. And uh, on my website, two websites, one for the uh, certification program, which is revolutionrunning.com with a two after the O, it's an acronym for running common, you the two max and lactate threshold. So revolution running, R-E-V-O-2, revolution running. And then my personal website, which has all my coaching, my books and everything, is run-fit.com. So R-U-N-F-I-T.com. Awesome, awesome. And I'll make sure to include that in the description uh, oh, yeah. for this. So Dr. Carp, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast, 
sharing some very insightful information. Um, and as we talked about, and I mentioned before, I think this is a topic that can be expanded upon in a second episode. We'll see if uh, we can make that happen and provide really good information for personal trainers in this area. Again, thank you very much. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.